0: The scripture text for this morning is Romans 5 12 through 21. I invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then... As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: Let's pray. Lord takes your breath away just to hear it. This massive, deep, broad, inexhaustible paragraph what can I do with it so come I pray and do a work in me and through me and in us here that will be never forgotten for the glory of your name and the good of our souls Lord sin is so powerful it is so blinding and so hardening human beings and human reasonings are helpless to save sinners, to open the eyes of the blind to soften hard hearts, to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh and yet these are our great designs and desires, God, that people would be saved that saints would be sanctified and strengthened, that people would be emboldened in their witness and purified in their lives and reconciled in their relationships. So Lord, do exceedingly abundantly beyond everything I can imagine to ask for in this hour. Come and help me. Please open this text. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When somebody begins to write or to uh, teach and they become complex, you think this is complex. There one of two possible things going on there. One is that the teacher has lost his bearings and is confused and doesn't know what he thinks. And therefore it sounds complex. And the other is that he's got his bearings and he's simply dealing with a reality that is so deep and so massive and so beyond what ordinary human speech can carry that it pushes the limits of what words and human concepts can handle so if you find something to be complex it might mean you have got a confused teacher or it might mean at that very moment there's a golden opportunity to linger and meditate and go deep now Romans 5 12 to 21 is complex no getting around it it's really hard and I don't think Paul has lost his bearings. He's an inspired spokesman, and he's got his head on straight. He knows where he's going. He's not confused in what he's saying. But it's complex. I think it's because he has chosen... There are reasons for this. We talked about some last week. We'll talk about a few more this morning. There are reasons why he has chosen to tackle the work of Christ... And understand it at a level, at a depth, that pushes the limits of human categories of thought and language. That's why I think it sounds complex. So, it's an opportunity, and I hope you'll take it, not just here, but later, to linger and meditate and work hard to get it somewhere I wrote and I can't remember where I said if if you rake across the surface you'll get leaves if you dig you might get gold so if you want your life to be a gathering of leaves rake scripture and if you want your life to be rich with gold and silver dig in scripture don't just rake scripture Most people just rake scripture. You've got to pause. You've got to linger. I've been on this text hour after hour after hour for weeks trying to figure out the flow of this thought. And it is bottomless, it seems to me. Not confused, but bottomless in its challenge to my categories. And you'll hear some of that this morning, and you won't like it, because this whole issue of how we're connected to Adam is very difficult and very controversial. So, let's remind ourselves where we were last week. We're on this now, second week, I told you I'd be three weeks on it, ha, I'd given that up. It's going to be a... To be longer than that because I'm not going to get through but 12 to 14 this morning and I can't do 15 to 21 next week so we'll be longer than three weeks on this. Last week was the big overview. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Why did Paul having spent about four and a half chapters on justification by faith, why does he at verse 12 Approach it again from this particular angle of how Christ and Adam relate to each other. Why does he do that? And I said, it's to exalt Jesus and show his work of redemption more clearly by comparing it and contrasting it with Adam than if we just looked at it by itself alone. Remember the dog illustration? you got Sable over here and you got Lady over here and you compare the two dogs and you see more than if you just look at one dog by himself. Bad illustration comparing Jesus and Adam. But I did it, and so the point is clear, namely that you will see more of Jesus and how he wrought a righteousness that remedies our condition if you see him compared and contrasted. With Adam. That's why he's doing he wants to exalt Jesus and take us as deep as we can go into how he saved us. Now here's the second thing we saw last week. And this was what I was most excited about, so I don't want to have you people who are new today miss it. Namely, that in comparing Christ and Adam. And showing that what Christ wrought for us in his obedience and righteousness is perfectly suited to remedy what happened to us in Adam and our fall and our contamination and our condemnation there. In showing that, he showed that Christ is not a tribal deity, he's not a Jewish Messiah only who comes along and fulfills Jewish prophecies to fix Jewish sins by becoming a Jewish sacrifice, he's related not just to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, he's related to Adam, and guess who Adam is the father of? Say it. Everybody. Which means that if our deepest problem is our connection with Adam, and what happened to us in Adam, And Jesus is the tailor-made, God-sent solution to what happened to us in Adam. He is that solution to everybody you know, and every ethnic group, and every language, and every place, and every time. You will never go to a people group anywhere on the face of the earth where this is not the problem. The main problem comes from how we're connected with Adam. So if Christ is connected to Adam as the solution, He's universal. That was last week's point. And that's great, because we want a universal Savior, not a tribal deity. Then we've got one. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, here's the uh, thing we have to do today. We have to dig in and look and see what the difference is between Christ and Adam, and how that unfolds the nature of justification. And the nature of justification here is at stake in this paragraph. And we want to get this right because it's at the center. So let's start at verse 12 and read just that verse. Verse 12, Romans 5. Therefore, just as through... One man, that's Adam now. Sin entered into the world. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned, and he breaks off his sentence. He doesn't finish it. We need we need a, we need a so also clause, Paul. You began Just as this happened, we need to. so-also that happened. Just as Adam, so-also Christ. Where is it? It's gone. He drops it. Why? That's a huge question. The answer to that question, why Paul broke off his sentence right here, is massively important. If you get the wrong answer to the question, why did he break it off and not pick it up again to verse 18, where he does finish this sentence and start it over again, if you get the answer to that wrong, you get almost everything wrong in this text. Because the parallel is going to break down. And it's going to be distorted if we answer that question wrong. So, that's my first question. Why did he break off right here? You notice where he broke off. Let's read it again. Therefore, just as through one man... So he's beginning a comparison. Just as Adam, so also Christ. He's not going to get there yet. He's going to break off. Just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin... So the penalty follows on the crime. And so death spread to all men... Because all sinned, and he stops in his comparison. Why? I think the reason is because this phrase, because all sinned, he knows as soon as he writes it, maybe he planned it, maybe he didn't, as soon as he writes it, he knows, uh oh, this could really be misunderstood. People could get this really, really wrong. Because all sin. What does? You think in your own head right now. What does because all sin mean? Here are the two possibilities. At least two. It might mean because everybody sins individually. Everybody goes on doing sins and that's why they die. Death spread to all men because everybody commits individual sins and sins are worthy of death and so they die. Or it might mean because all sinned in Adam. By virtue of being in union with our Father in some deep and profound way, His sin became our sin and His condemnation became our condemnation. That may be the meaning. Which is it? Now, what's at stake here? A lot. But before I tell you what's at stake, somebody might say, "Well, wait a minute, what really, does that make any difference at all? Because, they might say, doesn't it say in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everybody does sin and doesn't say in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so death does follow upon our sins. And so why do you need to go digging around behind that, which is a perfectly obvious explanation for why people die? They sin. Why do you have to poke down deeper to see whether or not there might be a more fundamental reason? for why we got into this condition and why the death sentence is hanging over every human everywhere in the world like union with Adam and his sin becoming our sin and his condemnation becoming our condemnation why do you do that? and the reason is because Paul does it Paul does it. Now here's what's at stake I'll give you one possible interpretation, and you can see what that will imply. And then another possible interpretation, and what that will imply, and then we'll see if the context helps us decide. Here's the first reading. Let's paraphrase it. If you understand all sin, at the end of verse 12, to mean all sin individually, and therefore we die. It would go like this. Through one man, sin he entered the world, and death through sin... So death spread to all, because all did individual sins. So also, through one man, Jesus Christ, righteousness and life entered the world. And life spread to all, because all individually do acts of righteousness. That's the parallel. That's important. Get it? You're not getting it. This is huge. If you take because all sinned to mean because all did individual sins, therefore we die. In this context, the parallel becomes righteousness enters the world through Christ. Life enters by righteousness. So life spreads to all because all do individual act of righteousness. And there's your parallel, now carry it through. And there's your doctrine of justification by your righteous works. That's one possible way of reading it. Here's the other one. Justice through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin So death spread to everybody because all sin in Adam and his sin was imputed to them because they were united with him. So also, now let's just finish the other half. Righteousness entered the world through one man, Jesus Christ, and life spread to all who are in Christ because he did righteous acts and we in him has his righteousness imputed to us. Now which of those is the biblical view of justification. You see what's at stake here? This is big. When Paul broke off his sentence in verse 12, having said, because all sin all die, he realizes, uh uh-oh, that could so easily mean Everybody does individual sins and therefore everybody dies for their individual sins and there's no corporate identity with Adam at all and therefore my whole connection between Christ and Adam breaks down at the outset. He's going to stop and he's going to fix it right here. That's why I think he broke off. So let me summarize. I haven't argued for this yet. The argument's going to come in verses 13 and 14. But let's just summarize the point. Just as Adam's sin is imputed to us because we were in him, so Christ's righteousness is imputed to us because we are in him. That's what I think Paul means in this unit of Scripture. Adam and Christ are held up as two heads of two humanities, as it were, and we were all in Adam. When he sinned, we sinned. And when he was condemned, we were condemned. When he died, we died. And now, in Christ, he brings a righteousness. He performs it. And we, in him, have that righteousness imputed to us. And before God, we are accepted in the Beloved for his righteousness' sake. If you want to see it stated most clearly, look down at verse 18, where he does get back to it, and pick up this positive parallel Up till this moment, 15 to 17, he's been showing the negative connections, which we'll get to next week. So then, verse 18, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. One transgression in Adam, condemnation for all. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. In Adam, we're all condemned, and all who are in Christ are justified. Adam's transgression is imputed to us. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. That's what's at stake in understanding the words, for All sinned, to mean, for all sinned in Adam. Now, how does Paul clarify that that's his meaning? What case does he make for what I've just said he thinks? So let's go to verse 13 and see what what he does now when he breaks off his comparison. He says... For until now, un, I mean, until the law, we're talking about the law of Moses, until the law of Moses, so from Adam to Moses, sin was in the world. So he concedes that. There's sin in the world, sin in our hearts, and everybody's heart back then. And then he says, but sin is not imputed, not counted, where there's no law. Nevertheless, verse 14, big nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Everybody died. Conclusion. What's the point? Let me say it again. Let me summarize the points again. One, sin is in the world before the Mosaic law, it's everywhere, in every heart. Number two, sin isn't counted. Punished, imputed, where there isn't a law. But everybody died. What's the point? What's the point? Isn't the point, it isn't individual sinning that brought death on everybody. It was sinning in Adam that brought death on everybody. That's the point. That's not convincing. That's not convincing. Right? That argument won't hold. Two huge objections to that argument. Right? And Paul sees them coming. He sees them coming. This is one smart fellow. And on top of that, he's inspired. So he sees these objections coming that under that seem to undermine the argument he's just made that sins in the world, it's not counted, but everybody's dying. So the sin for which they die must be a sin that they committed in Adam. And the objections just start coming. Objection number one. Wait a minute. Before the law of Moses... God said things to people as to what they should do and held them accountable to do it like Noah, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. So, if God spoke to people before the Mosaic law and told them to do things, couldn't their death be explained by the fact that they didn't do those things and therefore they died? And so your argument has a big hole in it. That's argument, objection number one. Objection number two, you, Paul, you said in chapter 1, verse 32, that all these pagans out there that aren't anywhere under the influence of the Mosaic Law have the law written on their heart such that they know that what they're doing is wrong and that it deserves death. The law is written on their heart, the penalty is in their mind. If they choose against it, they're choosing against the law and they deserve death. And so, why can't you explain the death of every human being between Adam and Moses by simply saying the law is written on every heart and they know what's right and they don't do what's right and for their own sin, they drop dead. So you have not persuaded. Now, seeing that coming, Paul keeps writing. And one of my most common, in, in dealing with people who begin to object to Scripture and bring up problems, my most common response is keep reading. Keep reading. <laughs> Read the rest of the verse. Read the context. So let's keep reading. Up to this point, he has made a broad, principal point about before law, not held accountable. Still dying, then come the objections, and now comes the answer. Let's read the whole thing. Nevertheless, this is verse 14. Death reigned from Adam till Moses, here it comes, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, Paul concedes the objection. There are some people who have sinned like Adam sinned. So yes, you could say, maybe the explanation of their death is their own sin. He concedes that. But, his argument terminates on these people, whoever they are. Even over those, death is killing, death is reigning, the penalty of sin is falling upon those who did not sin. In the likeness of the offense of Adam. Hmm, who's that? Who is that? There must be a group of human beings who can't see a law, know a law, and choose against that law, and know the consequence, like Adam did. Who are they? And my answer is, infants. Infants. And I know, I've read lots of commentaries on this that people say, oh, infants, they're not in Paul's mind. That's so extraneous to the context. I don't think it is. Because if you are facing a period of history before 9 one before neonatal, before the knowledge of infection and germs, when virtually... Three-fourths of every baby born doesn't live through the first year. And you're saying that death is a consequence of sin. you got to have an answer. you got to say something about that. And there are those who were dying in that period who did not sin after the likeness of the offense of Adam, namely babies. So what's his conclusion? Death spread... i at verse 12 again. Death spread to all men because all sinned... And now I'm arguing. In Adam... Because death spread to all men, even those who never sinned against unexplicit law. Whether written on their heart, or spoken out of heaven, or written on the tablets of Mount Sinai. Any three of those could undermine Paul's argument. Mosaic law, personal revelation, law written on the heart. Any three of those could undermine his argument. But not even those who... Sinned not after the likeness of Adam's transgression, namely those who sin in Adam and never in this life knew any law to sin against or any penalty to bring upon themselves. So if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. Let me try to summarize what I've said. The judicial consequences of Adam's sin are experienced by all of those who were in Him. That's everybody in the world. Not on the basis of the individual sins that they perform, but on the basis of their corporate identity with Adam and his sin being imputed to them and his condemnation being theirs as well. Therefore, and this is the glory, The judicial consequences of Christ's righteousness. That's the whole point of this text. The judicial consequences of Christ's righteousness are experienced by all of His people, not on the basis... You see the parallel? Not on the basis of their individual acts of righteousness, but on the basis of their union with Christ corporately so that His righteousness counts for their righteousness. And they live... And have acceptance with God Almighty in him. If you get it wrong with Adam, you're probably going to get it wrong with Jesus. Doctrines are so connected. And for Paul, he didn't have to do this. Why did he do this? Why did he lead us down this incredibly complex track Of comparing Christ to Adam, getting us all involved in this doctrine of original sin, showing that we are in Christ and in Christ his sin becomes ours and his condemnation becomes ours. Why did he do that? I mean, can't you just lay that aside? All that does is create controversy and divide people. And he did it because he loves the doctrine of justification. He loves the righteousness of Christ. He loves the thought that one man saves everyone who has sinned and who believes alone apart from works of the law. He loves the thought that the righteousness of Christ is the sole ground of his acceptance with God and that faith unites him with Christ, and that that righteousness then becomes his righteousness. He loves that doctrine, and he knows that one of the best ways to drive to the bottom of it and make sure that we get it right and that the foundations are well laid is to show that the way God set up the universe was to bring the whole human race into condemnation through one man, So that it might be crystal clear that salvation comes through one man and his righteousness alone. I mean, if you need anything to help you see the universal, global, massive significance of the doctrine of justification in the mind of Paul and the mind of God, this would do it because he has simply ordained a whole history to be run a certain way so that one man could shine. One man's righteousness could be the issue in the universe. Paul is so jealous for Jesus to be magnified as the sole and only ground of our acceptance with God and our justification before God, that God would ordain a whole history this way, so that Christ would be exalted as the one and only Savior. So I close with a a kind of exhortation. There are thousands of people, tens of thousands in the history of the church whose lives have been rescued from legalistic despair through this glorious doctrine of justification by faith or by grace through faith alone on the ground of the righteousness of Christ alone. There are there are so many Christians whose lives have been saved through this. Saved from the despair of legalism. Saved from right near, right now what many of you are experiencing in this room, namely the panicky feeling sometimes in your life of having to face God imperfect. You ever go to bed that way? Are you a nighttime guilty or a morning guilty? I'm a morning guilty. I feel totally secure when I go to bed in Jesus. And I feel unsaved when I wake up in the morning. I have no idea why. Probably my mother's fault. I'm I'm a 20th century person, right? Blame your mom. I don't think it was mom's fault. I don't know why I'm wired that way. But I know how I fight when I get up in the morning. This is how I fight. I have a righteousness, and it is not in me, it is outside of me, it's in heaven, and I have to lay hold on it every day afresh and comfort my heart and say, I must trust Him, I must trust Him, and that's what I want you to do now as we close. Trust Him, trust Him. I spent a month, about two weeks ago, remember I was away, writing volume two of of the Swan book on Bunyan, Cooper, And Brainerd. And they loved this doctrine. And so I took a whole chapter to just celebrate with these men how their lives were saved. I mean saved from destruction of suicide and despair. They were saved by this doctrine. And I want you to be saved by this doctrine. I want your marriages to be saved. This is a marriage-saving doctrine. I wonder if I need a sermon on that. Mm, mm, mm. Just a nutshell. Just a little nutshell. How are you going to stop demanding from her what, or him, what they're never going to give, and what you think you got to have? How are you going to stop doing that? That's a marriage killer. You give me, you give me, you give me because you should give me. Well, that's probably true. It's just irrelevant. <laughs> it's irrelevant to living the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. If you are accepted by God, not because you have performed adequately, you better, you better get it in the horizontal And stop demanding to be the condition for your staying. Just eat it. And rejoice in the Lord. Let the Lord be your all. C.J. Mahaney on a tape I was just listening to recently. I'll, I'll stop in just a minute, I promise. He said whenever he's asked how he's doing, he always answers, better than I deserve. He said he's gotten into more evangelistic conversations with that answer than anything in his life. Somebody else said, how are you doing? CJ? better than I deserve. What do you mean? Well, I'm a sinner and and there's the gospel. (laughs) It's just a perfect way, so use it. But I thought of this. If that's true, what about your marriage problems? Better than I deserve. I sat here a minute ago. Feeling this singing, looking at this light, feeling this air conditioning, looking at this full room, looking at all these visitors, looking at this word, looking at this, I got clothes, I'm healthy, and I just, I just almost melted with better than I deserve, better than I deserve. So how am I going to go home and get mad at Noel? Really, give me a break. How are you going to go home and get mad at your wife if you're really overwhelmed that your life is better than you deserve? Now I know, I know some of you are in situations that are horrific and I don't want to make light of them. But most marriages don't fail because of horrific situations. Some do. Some have to. You can't make some people not sleep with other people. But most marriages fail because we're just so demanding. We just won't Live this doctrine of better than I deserve, better than I deserve. I did not mean to preach on marriage, and I'm, I'm done. My closing word is, um, trust Jesus for your righteousness. Trust Him for everything. His love has met the law's demands. Trust Him for it. And then the Holy Spirit moves and you begin to be transformed little by little. And the marriage really can get better. It really can. It can get better. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you for any unbelievers in the room. That though it's been complex, maybe the center has been plain. That Jesus Christ came, lived, perfectly died, rose to be for us a substitute righteousness and a substitute sacrifice. So that in Him, by faith, we have an acceptance with a holy God clothed with the righteousness of another. Let that be plain, please. And let it be sweet and let it be acceptable in the heart of every person in this room. So that none would leave alienated from God. Would you stand with me, please? Let me close with a, another verse. I've just got so many verses I wanted to pack into this sermon. Here's one I'll just tack on the end. Um, This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is a glorious summary of the message. God made him to be sin who knew no sin for your sake. In order that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.